Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson, and I'm the senior pastor here, and I want to extend a special welcome to all of you, especially those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. Some of you have asked me uh, this morning already, so how'd you do at Bandemir Speedway this past week? Did you win? And uh, to that, I want to share with you this. We had dozens of folks <clears throat> from this congregation out there working our table. We greeted hundreds of people, sharing with them the love of God through Jesus Christ. With that alone, we won for the sake of Christ. So uh, uh, the actual race is not so much. But anyway, <laughs> I will tell you this, that uh, uh, Becky did leave Pastor Drew in her dust. So uh, anyway, um, uh, we're uh, continuing in our series through the book of Genesis. And I want to, uh, I'd ask you if you would turn to, with me to Genesis chapter 3 in your Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we're spending uh, five weeks in this series through Genesis 1 through chapter 12. And uh, last week we talked about Genesis 1, uh, how we were created in the image of God. And then this Sunday we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, which is typically uh, termed the story of the fall. So beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. <clears throat> they then sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, I I'm sorry, ladies, this is just what he said. <laughs> the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Not a single woman in this room is surprised at that answer. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The text then goes on and talks about the condemnation of the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then God speaks to the woman and then God speaks to the man. And then picking up again in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God open our eyes and our minds to hear what his spirit will teach us from this his holy word today. Amen. Well, the research is in. According to Pew Research, 72% of all Americans believe in heaven. And 85% of all Americans think that they're going to heaven. It takes a second. And these statistics are really interesting in light that 62% of Americans believe that they are sinners. But the study concluded that the understanding of most Americans is that sin is simply another way of saying that they're not perfect. That is, is that sin does not necessarily hinder our relationship with God. That sin is not something that identifies us as broken or separated from God. Or even that sin is something that we should necessarily be addressing in our life. Hmm. Today we continue in our series through the first 12 chapters of Genesis, and the lead up to this text begins in chapter 2, where God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden, and he says to them that they are allowed to eat of any tree that they want to, except they may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that they do it, they shall surely die. Isn't that how we human beings are? Got all of these things that you can do, no problem at all. The one thing that you can't do, this is it. And we human beings are what? Automatically drawn to the one thing that we can't do. When we began reading this morning in chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. Now, in order to really understand this context of the serpent, you have to understand a little bit about uh, the history of serpents in ancient religions. <clears throat> now, most of you will probably be surprised to hear that anciently serpents were not considered bad, they were not evil. As a matter of fact, pretty much every religion and every culture in the world has a story of a serpent. And in most of those religions and in most of those cultures, serpents are considered good things. They're symbols of healing. They're, they're symbols of rebirth. It's only been since the, uh, 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 the advent of the Hebrew Scriptures and specifically of Christianity that serpents have kind of gotten a bad rap. But if you go back and you read some of the sermons of some of the ancient Christian evangelists, people like Severin of Gabla, Ephraim the Syrian, Ambrose, John of Damascus, John Chrysostom. Now, you may not have heard all of those names, but in the first couple of hundred years of the church, these guys were the Billy Grahams of the ancient church. 
they were fantastic preachers. And so we can get a lot of insight in how Christianity and the Hebrew Scriptures were understood in those first couple of hundred years of the church. And in every single one of those sermons, uh, it is reinforced to the listeners, you have to remember that the serpent, at least anciently understood in, in human life, and human uh, culture, was actually a good thing. As a matter of fact, one of those preachers actually says that the serpent is, quote, man's best friend. Huh. See, dogs kind of came late to the show. Diamonds even later. Well, in these religions, there is an interesting point throughout all of the world that in every single case, as the serpent is introduced in the sacred stories of these cultures and these religions, that the serpent started out as a good guy, and then because of some accident or some issue of vengeance or anger or jealousy, the serpent turned on humanity and became humanity's greatest enemy. Now, this is consistent with Scripture. And by the way, parenthetically, I'm always intrigued at how so many ancient cultures throughout the world, many who have never had any context with each other, any connection with each other, have these similar stories. Powerful for me, I think. But when we are introduced to this serpent, lots of things begin to come to play. Now, in your bulletin, I have an outline for you. And because I don't have slides with you this morning, I'm going to give you a heads up of when we hit each of these points in your bulletin. And so here's the first point. The first point is, is that the unfortunate truth is that you and I not only ignore the Word of God, we add to it, to our detriment. Now look with me back in the Scripture. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Obviously, when you read it, you knew that this was a blatant misrepresentation of not only what God said, but it was a complete abdication or forgetting or denying the extreme goodness that God had for Adam and Eve. Not only did God not say what the serpent said, God said that they could eat of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ever confident in the love that Eve believed her creator had for her, she heard these challenges by the serpent, and she was overwhelmed and overcome by it. Look what she said. When the serpent asked that question, she said, no, that's not what God said. What God said is, is that we should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, unfortunately, she adds, or touch it, for then we shall surely die. Did God say anything about touching it? No. It is the number one method that the powers of darkness use in coming against us. Sowing seeds of doubt into our mind. Sowing seeds that God actually loves us. That God actually has planned goodness for us. That God has our best in mind. Let me suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that when you find yourself in a moment in life, when you think that God may not really love you, 
If in the quietness of your home, in the desolation of your experiences and of your feeling, when you begin to question whether or not God will really protect you, when you begin to consider whether or not God will really be true to His Word, may I suggest to you that you are under spiritual assault by the powers of darkness. Just like the serpent appealed to Eve sowing the seeds of doubt into her mind, he then changed his tactic and began to appeal to her pride. The same thing that the spirits of darkness do to us. We can be our own gods. We can be like God. And sometimes the powers of darkness use our best friends, those closest to us, our families, our church, our aspirations to lead us to doubt and then to tempt us, to seduce us with pride. You've probably heard the phrase, you may not have known that it comes from the Bible in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Pay attention in your life. May we pay attention in our lives to those moments when doubt creeps into our mind and pride begins to overwhelm our experiences. And all of this, point two, we see that the human experience includes the spiritual. You know, after Eve considered the serpent's words, she ate, she gave it to her husband, incidentally, who was with her. Sometimes when you watch the movies, you see Eve going out looking for her husband because he's nowhere around. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were standing together. They were together when the serpent came to them. It's just as much his fault as it is her fault. But in that moment, their pride, the pride of both Adam and Eve, the willingness to allow the doubts of God's word to spread its insidious roots into their hearts and into their minds, it not only broke all of creation, it manifested itself in continual rebellion and brokenness dare I say it, in sin. <laughs> now, you see, I'm going to be talking about sin quite a bit. I'm a preacher, after all. You know the phrase, my wife and I are on our way to church. She says, what are you going to talk about? And I said, sin. She said, what are you going to say about it? I'm against it. <laughs> She'll then say, well, what else are you going to preach on? I said, Jesus. She says, what are you going to say about him? I'm for him. And unfortunately, in our world today, we have this idea that sin is a list of things that we should do or shouldn't do. And, and although there's some truth to that, the word sin literally means missing the mark. That is, is not hitting what God has planned for our life. Not being the person that God created us to be. That's what sin is. Sin is not just a statement or a, of a list of things to do or things not to do. Sin is an expression of our brokenness with our Creator. It's a state that we find ourselves in. You know those statistics that I gave you earlier? It's hard to hear, I know, but Western civilization is really no longer shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's hard to hear. It makes our job even more difficult on one level. But I would suggest to you that these stats that I listed to you earlier actually say something more about how folks experience the world. 
That is, is that when most folks think about the world and their place in it, they think about their five senses. You know, sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch, those sorts of things. One of the things that most human beings discount entirely is our spiritual connection with the world. Our spiritual connection with each other. And more significantly, our spiritual connection with God. We have kind of fallen into this rut in every single one of us, from the most holy of us to the most profane of us, have come to view that our success in the world is dependent upon how much money we have, how much respect that we have, whether we're driving the right car, living in the right house. And for some folks, they have reacted in the midst of that context with this phrase, a phrase that I know all of you have heard. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor during World War II, he spent his life resisting Hitler's Nazi regime, and it cost him his life. In one of his books, he wrote this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Now I'm going to tell you that I think the word religion has gotten a bad rap these days. Although we've kind of brought it on ourselves. The criticism is warranted. For most folks, religion is seen as something that, uh, that, that, um, that, that we do uh, in order to get God's love. It's a list of prayers that we have to say, or holidays that we have to observe, or, or rules and practices that we need to be engaged in. And We have been rightfully critical of that. But even those who are critical of that, they've added their own list of things. They've added their own list of things to God's Word. They've said that in, in, in order to have an authentic experience, you have to have a certain emotion or a certain feeling. That is, is that if you're, if you're not sensing some emotional response or some feeling about it, then you don't have a, a right relationship with God. That is, is, is that if you're not in tears on the front row begging God for forgiveness, then you're not really in a relationship with God. And none of that is in Scripture. That's not biblical. And yet we allow it to manifest itself and we accept that description by the world. And neither of those things are true. Here's what the word religion literally means. It comes from a Latin word, religio. It means to tie back together. We get the word ligament from it. And for those of you who are upright and walking, your ligaments are working good. You know how painful and horrible it is when you tear a ligament. You're not able to walk. You're not able to do the things that you do. And that's what the word religion means. Religion is the thing that ties us to God, that binds us to God's goodness. Religion isn't a bad thing. As a matter of fact, the New Testament actually speaks of it. It uses the word and describes to us what the true definition of religion is. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down this text. James chapter 1, verse 27. Go back this afternoon and read that. Here's what James says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's what true religion is. 
That's religion in its biblical sense. That's the being tied back together in the sense that the Holy Spirit wants you and me to understand. What the Bible is trying to tell us here is is that it is impossible for spirituality and religion to exist separately. The two have to come together. And the important thing here is that not only did we have to correctly define religion according to how the Bible defines it, we also have to define spirituality the way the Bible defines it. Because true spiritual, the word spirituality gives us this idea that it's all about me. It's about my experiences, my thoughts, my feelings, the way I accept this, the way I enter into this event. When you came into this place this morning, you might have had sort of the, the, the subtle thought in your mind that in order for this to be a true spiritual experience for me, I have to do something to get ready for it. And I understand why you would think that. Sometimes I think about that as well. Even as a preacher, I think about that. That the effectiveness of what we're doing right now, the proclamation of the word, is somehow dependent upon me and my heart, my preparation, my mind. That's not biblical either. Because the way the Bible talks about spirituality, it's not about my experience. It's not about my work. It is about the presence of the Holy Spirit. To be spiritual in the biblical understanding has less to do with me and more to do with the Holy Spirit. That is succinctly stated, and I hope I don't upset any of you too much. Part of my job is to upset you a little, you know. Is is that this. You cannot be spiritual without the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible understands it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Therefore I want you to understand, no one can even say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of, you know what the word is? Holy Spirit. So what do I say to folks who say that they're spiritual but not religious? Well, I don't say anything to them at all. But I try to speak back to them what the Bible says. What sacred scripture says, that according to the teachings of the Christian faith, you can't really be one without the other. True religion requires the Holy Spirit. True religion requires an authentic spirituality that is hinged upon a pure and undefiled relationship with God. It's a twofer. Just like James says, true religion True spirituality is something that we do with the widows and orphans. It isn't about tweeting or Facebooking or whatever social media platform you have. It's not about expressing your outrage at how bad things are. It's about asking ourselves the question, what will I do? How will I react? How will I be a part of the solution? And It is keeping ourselves unstained by the world. And brothers and sisters, this isn't just like what your grandmother would say. Well, just don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. It's more about recognizing the true spiritual darkness of the world, which is manifested through things like greed, jealousy, a thirst for power, the response of anger, 
and the demand for vengeance. The spiritual life is not about experiences or feelings. It's about being connected to, it's about submitting to, it's about being in relationship with the author of creation. Something that Adam and Eve chose to forego for the desire to be their own gods. They wanted to make their decisions. They wanted to be the ones that decided what was good and wasn't good. They wanted, they lusted for the opportunity to know themselves the difference between good and evil. And not to be too harsh, but unfortunately for many folks who want to be, quote, spiritual but not religious, what they're really saying is is that they want to be their own gods. The same thing that Adam and Eve said through their disobedience. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's really not all that different from what we say to ourselves. We're no better, and thanks be to God, no worse than those who are wandering in darkness. The third point that I want to share with you this morning that's in your bulletin, others suffer the consequences of our decisions. One of the founders of the Christian church movement is a guy named Alexander Campbell, and and, and he wrote this book called Christian System. It's one of my favorite books. He wrote it back in the 1800s, but it seems as applicable today as it was back then to me. As a matter of fact, I keep it on my desk right next to my Bible. When people ask me questions, one of the first things I do is I go to the Christian system and see if Campbell said anything on it. doesn't necessarily mean I always agree with him, but I always want to see what he said about it. And here's what he said about the lesson that was read to you today from Genesis chapter 3. He said, Adam rebelled. I love that word. It's not the word that we oftentimes hear. It's different than the word sin, isn't it? As a matter of fact, it really captures the fullness of of what really happened. It wasn't just that Adam and Eve did something that they weren't supposed to do. It's that Adam and Eve decided not to believe God's word that he had the best in mind for them. It was a rebellion against their creator. It was a rebellion against their divine parent. And Campbell goes on and he writes, at that moment the crown fell from his head. The glory of the Lord departed from him. He felt his guilt and trembled. He saw his nakedness and blushed. Man, they could write good back in the 1800s, couldn't they? But Campbell goes on to say, and he says this, We have all inherited our father's constitution. For Adam, we are told, after he fell, begat a son in his own image. That's from Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. It's the exact quote from the Bible. Genesis 5, verse 3. I'll have to tell you, I've read this dozens, maybe even hundreds of times, but it didn't really hit me square between the eyes until I was preparing for this message today. You see, last week we talked about being made in the image of God, in the image of God's beauty, in the image of God's conscience, in the image of who God is. I wonder if the Bible specifically then draws the comparison. Just as Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, once Adam fell, he created a child in his image. A child, a son that was just as bad as any other son ever born into the world. For you'll remember if you read on how this son murdered his own brother because he was better than himself. God had told them the result of their rebellion. 
God had said in chapter 2, he said, now look, if you do this, you will die. As a matter of fact, if you read the King James, it'll said, it says something along the lines, you shall surely die. In the original language, it, it could really be translated, dying, you shall die. Just in case there's any questions about what's going to happen. Now, I don't think that this te that text necessarily means that at the very moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were going to physically die. We know that isn't the case because they didn't physically die. But they did die. They died a spiritual death. They died in their relationship with their Creator. They rejected the one who formed them out of the dust of the earth. They abandoned the one who blew into them breath and gave them life. They rebuffed the one who loved them with all of who he was. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit that day, they died spiritually. Now you'll have to answer for yourself, which is the worst death? To die physically? A death every single one of us in this room will deal with eventually? Or to die spiritually? When I was a student at Lynchburg College, they were having a party one night. You know those kinds of parties, right? None of you have been to one. There was a girl who had come to the party that night, and she had had a little too much of the refreshments that were offered. You know what I'm saying, right? She passed out on the couch in the living room. The party moved from that house to another house. And later that night, a bunch of guys or gals, we don't really know, drove by and threw some firecrackers onto the front porch as a practical joke. What they didn't realize is one of those firecrackers caught the porch on fire. The house burnt down, and that young girl lost her life. The student body was furious. They were angry and wanted those who were guilty of that to be held uh, responsible for it. And several days later, they were having a a memorial service to remember and celebrate this young girl's life. And the president, President Rainsford, stood up at the pulpit and he said that he was going to tell us who was responsible for this young girl's death. We all scooted up to the edge of our pews wanting to hear whose fault it was, who would be punished for this. But you know who President Rainsford said the fault was? All of us. For tolerating that kind of behavior. For not taking care of the people who are in need, especially in their weakness. For allowing this kind of thing to occur in our culture, we are all responsible. Our actions have results that other people pay for. One of my best friends is an Episcopal priest. You may know Episcopal priests, when they're all dressed up, they look a lot like another kind of priest. He never really understood all of the issues that were going on in that other church until one day he was in line at the grocery store. There was a young boy in front of him in line, and the little boy kept looking up at him. And, and my friend, who has, who's married, has two children of his own, has a heart, big as all outdoors, loves Jesus, looked at the little boy, smiled, and waved. The little boy's mother saw it, and she grabbed her son and pulled him around and placing herself between my friend and her little boy. He was so upset about that that he called me right after that was done. And he said, 
I just experienced what it's like to suffer for the sin of someone else. Every single one of us have suffered for something someone else did. But it's also true that other people suffer for the things that we do or the things that we don't do. You know, in Romans chapter 5, Paul brings a conclusion to all of this. This is important. If you don't listen to anything else today, please listen to this. Paul says this, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that sin spread to all people, so too, through the obedience of one man, has righteousness been given to all. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is, is because we are the descendants of Adam and Eve. We inherit their brokenness. We don't earn our way to God. But it was God himself who clothed himself with flesh and came and dwelt among us and suffered the penalty of our brokenness at the cross. That his obedience, that his righteousness is now our own. That's the gospel. The gospel is you can't save yourself. But God, with his unrelenting love, came and did it for you. My question is what will you do with that gift? How will you receive that gift today? Almighty God, merciful God, We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. And we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may walk in your ways and delight in your will to the glory of your name. Amen.